Man, what an exciting time to be able to celebrate our, our second anniversary of a church that we have uh, been here for, for two years. And I, and, and I just have to say that I am just overwhelmed that God lets me be a part of this. And I am uh, just overcome with joy uh, because this is, this is amazing. And, um, and I'll be honest, you know, I'll be honest if you're going to ask me and say, well, Kevin, you know, two years in, you know, what have you learned? And I'll say, I've learned that church planning is hard and that uh, church planning is difficult. There are uh, definitely, definitely some, some, some hard things that we've had to go through the past two years, some, some difficult challenges that we are, are having to, to go through. But as I, I look back at these two years, as I look back at the hard things, I look back at the good things, I look back at everything. And it's so great to see God working so faithfully in our midst, to see God changing lives right here. And so as we talk about having a, a two-year celebration of Restoration Church, really we should have an opportunity to celebrate God because God is the one who's worthy of our celebration. God is the one who's been doing everything in this church. And, and, and that's really the person that we should be celebrating today, uh, what he has done in, in our lives and, and in, our, in our midst and in our circle. And while it's important for us to, to celebrate and be able to have this opportunity to celebrate two years, you know, I want to come back to why we are here. Because sometimes what happens, especially in church planning, is, is as a church you get going and, and you get excited about where, th- you, know, where you are and, and what God has done. And it's, it's very quickly that you get distracted from why you planted, from, from the reason we exist. And so I always want to come back to this, as to we exist to know Christ. And what's the second part? To make Christ known. That is why we are here. That is why we're here two years later. That is why we planted two years ago. And, and we have to be able to come back to that time and time and time again. Because if we, if we get distracted from that, man, man, at what point do we just be uh, pushing hot air around? Not really doing much. And so, so what better way for us to, to celebrate this morning than to study a passage that's going to teach what it means for us to know Christ and to make Christ known. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in uh, Matthew. Excuse me, we're not in Matthew. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. If you need a Bible, if you just slip your hand up, uh, we've got an usher in the back, and uh, we'd love to be able to come and put one of these Bibles in your hand. If you have one of these uh, hardback Bibles, uh, like I do here from the church, it's even got my name on it, that's cool. Uh, it's going to be on page 844. And uh, uh, we also have the, the words on the screen as well. You know, as we've been studying through this Gospel of Mark last week, we saw the climax of the first half of, of, of Mark. Remember, we said that when we started the Gospel of Mark, that Mark is broken into to two halves. The first half really details why, who Jesus is. And the second half, which we'll begin today, details why Jesus came. And so last week we saw the climax of, of, of who Jesus is. If you remember, Jesus was hanging out with the disciples, and Jesus asked the disciples, he said, hey, disciples, who do the people say that I am? You know, who, who do the people around you, who do they say that I am? And, and if you remember, the disciples said, well, you know, some people said you're like a prophet. Some people said you're like Moses. And then Jesus got really personal. He said, hey, Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? And this is when Peter, for the first time, he got it. It clicked He said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the divinely appointed, anointed one that the Old Testament has been talking about all the way since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. You are the one that we've been waiting for, the promised priest, the promised prophet, the promised king that we've been waiting for all this time. And in our text today, 
starting in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8, Jesus is continuing that same conversation. He's continuing that same conversation with his disciples who Peter has just confessed that he is the Christ. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to explain, he's going to begin to explain why he came. And specifically in this text, he's going to explain what it really means to follow him. Because we have these different ideas of what it means to follow the king. Well, does that just mean I pray a prayer? Does that just mean I go to church on Sunday? Or what does it mean for us really to follow Jesus, to be in a relationship with him? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And before we read, would you pray with me? God, just thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for uh, your presence. God, we plead for your presence to continue to rest on this church. God, we want to be uh, in your presence. We want your hand. We want your blessing. God, I pray that you would continue to work in our lives. Just as you've worked in Adam's life and just as you've worked in Drew and Danielle's lives. God, I pray that you would work in all of our lives. God, I pray that you would meet us here. God, I pray as when we talk about this conversation of what it means for us to follow the king. God, I pray that you would help us to understand. I pray, God, that we would listen and that we would be open, God, to what it is that you want to show us today. That, God, we would become conformed to your image. God, we thank you for who you are. And uh, thank you for meeting us here now in your name. Amen. So Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And it says this. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And he took Peter aside and, or, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's a loaded couple of verses right there. There's a lot of, of stuff in there. See, what happened is Peter, he identified, he, he acknowledged, he confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for all this time. And so at that point, the disciples, things would have clicked in their mind. They would have known, hey, as, as Israel, as, as Jewish people, we have been waiting for the Christ for all this time. We've been waiting for, for the one who's going to come ever since David talked about him. Way back in the time of King David. This superhuman leader who was going to overthrow Israel's enemies. Who was going to regather all of God's people from the four corners of the earth. This, this, this superhero, the superhuman who was going to uh, make uh, Jerusalem and Palestine and Israel the center of the world. This, this, this leader who was going to establish the perfect reign of God. They knew this man was coming and they were excited because they realized Jesus is the Christ. He's the fulfillment of all of that. That's exciting. In fact, one of the terms that Jesus often uses to identify himself is he calls himself the son of man. The son of man. I think he uses it 15 times in the gospel of Mark alone. And this term, son of, son of man, it comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. In chapter 7, Daniel prophesied and he wrote, and he said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And this, this human, uh, this vision of a human figure, he comes on the clouds of heaven and he approaches the ancient, the ancient of days. That is God himself. 
And there's God sitting on his throne. And this son of man comes and approaches. And, and, and God gives him all glory and all authority and all sovereign power. So that in consequence, because God has given that to that son of man, all peoples and all nations and all men of every nation, of every language, of every tongue would come and they would worship that son of man. And his dominion, Daniel says, is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. His kingdom will be one that will never be destroyed. So you can imagine Peter. He's got this picture in his mind of the son of man from what Daniel had said. And you've got, the, you've got to understand when he confessed that Jesus is a Christ, he's got to be thinking this is the fulfillment of that. Because even as we've studied through the first eight chapters of, of the gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus. What's he been doing? He's been doing all sorts of miraculous types of things. I mean, Jesus, he burst onto the scene doing all sorts of amazing things and proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Think about this. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's calmed storms. He's calmed waves. He's calmed the wind. He's walked on water. Twice he's fed multitudes of people with just a few loaves of bread. He's done all of these miraculous things. So, of course, Peter's got to think, man, our superhero's here. Our superhero is here. This is that Messiah, the Christ, who's going to come and, 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 and use power to, to set things right. To Peter's understanding, Jesus was the all-powerful, all-conquering leader. A revolutionary figure who would banish the Roman Empire, their domination of Israel. They would free Jerusalem and they would restore the fortunes of God's people. Perhaps you could picture Peter picturing Jesus sitting on a gold throne in Jerusalem. But look what Jesus said. He said in verse 31, he said, he, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. And he said this plainly. This wasn't a parable. Jesus said this very plainly. So you got a picture. Peter sitting there saying, what's this about the Son of Man having to suffer? What's this about the Son of Man having to do these things? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't sound right. See, but what Jesus is doing is Jesus is taking two pictures. See, Peter had this Old Testament picture of, of the Messiah being this, this royal figure, this powerful figure. He had this, this picture from the Old Testament from Daniel of this is what the Son of Man means. He's going to come and have all dominion and all power. But what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, there's another picture in the Old Testament of, uh, of the Savior, of the Messiah, of the Christ. And that's the picture of a suffering servant from the, gospel, from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 says it very clearly, says about the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus 
He's saying, I'm going to take these two pictures and I'm going to put them in together to give you a picture of what the Christ really is. So he's saying, Jesus is saying to Peter, yes, yes, the Son of Man, when he comes, he will be the all-conquering one. He will come to do battle. He will come to gather people to himself. But he'll come not as a superhero. but He'll come as a suffering servant. He'll come as the one who is bruised and chastised and disfigured and beaten and killed. And he takes these two Old Testament pictures and he fuses them together so we can have a proper view of what the Christ really is. And notice the language that Jesus used. This is something in your Bible you should circle this word must in verse 31. He said, he said, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. See, that word must, it modifies and it controls that entire sentence. Means everything in that sentence is a necessity. See, there is a divine necessity, there is a divine necessity that the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must be resurrected. It has to happen. See, Jesus is teaching about the necessity of the cross. That the only way that God can redeem his people, the only way that God can redeem us, is through the cross. Through the redemption that he bought and purchased by his death on that cross. This Jesus, he must be beaten. He must be tried. He must be tested. He must be forsaken. He must be crucified. If any of us are going to have the ability to come into a relationship with him and to be redeemed. So don't miss, don't miss these divine words of how necessary they are. I mean, you think about, you think about Christianity and you think, well, why, why is the symbol of Christianity? Why is it the cross? Why isn't the, the, why isn't it the manger? I mean, the manger celebrating the birth of Christ, that's so significant for us. What about, what about the, the carpenter's bench? Isn't that important for us? No, see, this right here is why the symbol of Christianity is a cross. Because it is divine, divinely necessary. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. Without the cross, there is no salvation. But Peter, oh, oh how I love Peter. I find so much of myself in Peter says in verse 30, 33, excuse me, he said in verse 32, it says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he re- Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter hears this idea of this weak and crucified savior and hears this idea and he pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus as if what Jesus is saying is evil and wrong. I mean, to Peter's mind, Jesus, you're the Christ. You shouldn't have to suffer. You're the Messiah. And Jesus, in response, he rebukes Peter back and he calls him Satan. I mean, that almost sounds a little bit rough and unnecessary. Sounds like what teenage boys do to their brothers and sister, you know. Satan, you're, you, you know, that maybe that's just, you know, the way, the way I grew up. But, but in Matthew chapter 4, there's a story about the temptation of Jesus. And, and, uh, and Satan is tempted, is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And Satan offered Jesus the world kingdom without any suffering. He said in verse 9 of Mar- Matthew chapter 4, 
Satan said to Jesus, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. So Satan, long ago, he wanted to tempt Jesus with the prospect of winning the kingdom by the way of pride and power. And by taking charge, not by humility, not by weakness, not by obedience. So Satan tempted Jesus long ago to achieve his kingship exactly the way that Peter is saying to do right now. Saying, Jesus, you don't have to suffer. Jesus, don't suffer. I will just give you the kingdom if you bow down and worship me. And so Jesus remembers Satan's temptation of him. And he's saying, Peter, you're trying to offer me the same thing. You're trying to tell me to take the easy route. To take the the, the way of pride and power. But Peter, I have come. As the suffering servant. See, Satan, Satan, he didn't tempt Jesus with more suffering. He tempted Jesus with more comfort, with ease, with with immediate and quick glory and success. In fact, this is what he still does with us. Satan, he doesn't tempt us with suffering. He doesn't, what kills our spirituality and our walk with Jesus isn't more suffering. It's comfort. It's ease. It's prestige. It's honor. It's the here and the now. These things slowly will kill your faith. They will kill your faith. See, the point that Jesus is making here, he's saying, I'm not that kind of God. I'm not that kind of Messiah that anybody would ever expect. He see, I came to give up power, to lose, to become weak, to suffer, and to die for you. See, our prejudices and our our, our worldly wisdom is completely confounded and challenged by the way that Jesus comes. And Peter is standing in the crosshairs and saying, well, Jesus, I thought you'd be this great, powerful Messiah. And and it just doesn't make sense to me. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, you're thinking of things from a human man's perspective, but you've got to look at things from a God's perspective. And this is what the gospel is all about. We talk about the gospel. We are a church built on the foundation of the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus died and lost in order to win our salvation. We have to understand this. So Jesus, he's talking, he's saying, this is a cross I have to bear. There's going to come a point where I'm going to have to bear this cross. So that way you can be redeemed. But Jesus is going to begin talking about a second cross, another cross, a cross that he doesn't bear, but a cross that you and I are to bear. He says in verse 34, he says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus summarizing two of the great demands of discipleship in the kingdom of God. He's saying the two things that are required of us to be a follower of his, a disciple, is that we deny ourselves and that we take up our cross and follow him. See, this is where we look at the first half of our mission statement. Our first half of our mission statement is to know Christ. One of the things I'm learning in this process of church planning is we've got to have some definition to some of the things we talk about. I mean, we can talk about things and say to know Christ, but do we understand what really it means for us to know Christ? Because I can assume that everybody knows what it means to know Christ, but you've got to have the definition of what that means. To know Christ means to follow him. It's not some catchy little phrase. To know Christ is to follow him. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is how you follow me. 
You deny yourself. You take up your cross and you follow me. John Calvin, old reformer, he wrote a book called The Institutes of Christian Religion. And, and in his commentary on First Peter, this is what he says that perfectly, clearly articulates this idea. He says, God has so instituted the church from the very beginning that death is the way to life and the cross is the way to victory. Death is the way to life and the cross is the way to victory. See, denying ourselves, this means that we deny our privileges. We deny our status. We deny our rights. We deny our plans. We deny our our dreams. We deny our desires. We are willing to deny all of it, all of ourselves, for the sake of pursuing our King, Jesus. And he tells us not only to deny ourselves, but he tells us to take up our cross. See, there's a cross that Jesus is going to bear on that, on that day, on that Golgotha, many years ago. But there's a cross, too, that we as disciples, that we have to bear, that we have to carry. There's a cross that we are expected to bear ourselves. And Jesus is telling us that just like his cross, our cross is a cross of trial. Our cross is a cross of suffering. A cross that is so demanding of us. I mean, many of you here this morning, many of you know, you know all too well what this cross is all about. You've followed Jesus with all of your heart. You've loved him. You've sang his praises. Yet how many times do we come in and how many times do we have our hearts heavy and burdened because of the cross that we bear? Trials in your home. Trials in your family, trials in your marriage, trials in your workplace. You think about the few words that Danielle shared about about the cross that Drew and Danielle have had to, to bear on their own. The only encouragement I can give to you is to think through the words of the ancient theologian Thomas Aquinas said. He said, if you will bear the cross, the cross will bear you. If you will bear the cross, the cross will bear you. If we are willing to set aside and deny ourselves, if we're willing to take that cross to follow Jesus, if we bear that cross, then that cross will bear us. Jesus says next, he says, verse 35 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. This is a very bizarre statement. I mean, Jesus thinks that if you lose your life, if you lose all that you are, all that you think you should be, and you listen to him, and you let him tell you how you should live your life, he's saying then that is where life is found. You want to know where life is found? It's found in losing ourselves and choosing him. This is so contrary to the way that most of us live, to the way that we've been brought up, to the way our society tells us to live. We think that to have life, to have joy, means that we have to be true to ourselves no matter what. I mean, that's kind of the mantra of our society. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Be who you think you should be. And this is exactly opposite of what Jesus says here. He says, don't be true to yourself. Be true to him no matter what. Because this is where life and joy are found. Life and joy are found in losing ourselves for his sake. Life 
and joy are found in losing ourselves for God's sake. I mean, this is so scary. I read this and I get scared and overwhelmed because it means of letting go of who I am, letting go of who I want to be. It's, it's scary to consider I have to lose myself so I can follow Jesus because I don't, what if I don't like what Jesus is going to turn me into? What if Jesus changes me into something that I didn't think I wanted to be? The Apostle Paul, in the book of Philippians, he wrote and he took some time and he bragged about all of the righteous works that he had done. All that he was. He looked at everything he was and he said, this is who I was. Almost bragging about how great he was. And then he said in Philippians 3, 7 and 8, he said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He says, I count them all as rubbish because it is better for me to have Jesus than to have everything I could imagine. He, Paul, had to lose everything in order to get Jesus. And he said it was well worth it. He said, trust me, it is worth it. The reward is worth the suffering. We will have to lose our life, but that reward is completely worth it. Jesus continues in verse 36. And he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? In the eighth, in the eighth century, there was a, uh, a famous king, King Charlemagne. King Charlemagne was the, the, the builder of the so-called Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy or Roman, essentially. But uh, uh, he was a fighter of countless number of battles. King Charlemagne. And history has it, has it, it tells us that 200 years after his death, another emperor, emperor by the name of Otho, he went inside to, to King Charlemagne's tomb to see the way in which he had buried this great king, this great important king, King Charlemagne. And they discovered Charlemagne was sitting, buried upright on a throne. And he had a, he had a crown on his skull, and he had a copy of the Gospels on his lap. And directed on his finger was pointing to the very text, the very verse that we just read, verse 36. Indeed, this powerful picture, this bony finger that had been the finger of one of the most powerful and wealthy men in the entire world was resting upon this verse. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Listen, don't think that this doesn't include you. Don't think that this doesn't include every single one of us. What will you gain? What will you gain if you gain everything this world has to offer? If you make millions and millions of dollars, if you have the most beautiful family, if you have all these things, if, if, you, if your business becomes as successful as, as, as Starbucks or some other uh, successful company, what would you gain if you had everything that this world had to offer and you lose your own soul? Jesus says this, in verse 38, he said, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. See, 
For those of us who would say, I'm going to pursue this world and all this world has to offer. For those of us who would say, I'm not willing to suffer for Jesus. I'm not willing to identify with Jesus because that would mean I have to let go of myself. I have to deny myself and follow him. For those who would choose to forsake Jesus now, who would be ashamed to take up their cross and follow Jesus. For those who would see the way of the cross and decide to turn away to avoid that suffering and that that shame and that condemnation. Listen, you will not escape suffering. There is no escape to suffering. We either suffer now or we suffer in the life to come. You can gain the whole world. You can have its entire honor, its privileges, its status, its power, and it will mean nothing. Because there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to come back. And he's coming back to bring honor to those who suffered for him. And to bring shame to those he didn't. He's coming back. He's not coming back as a suffering servant. He's coming back as a conquering king. Either we will suffer in this life for him or we will suffer for rejecting him in the next life. Our last verse this morning, chapter 9, verse 1. says, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Many people have been confused by that verse. Thinking, did Jesus just say that these disciples will be there at the second coming of Christ? And clearly, Jesus hasn't come back yet. So clearly, Jesus was wrong. Clearly, the, the Bible can't be trusted. Is that what that verse really means? I don't think that's what it means. I think actually, as you begin to get into uh, understanding what the, the gospel is about, and in fact, if you look into Acts chapter 1, We'll have these words on the screen, this verse on the screen. Acts chapter 1, just before Pentecost, Jesus, God, sent the Holy Spirit and his power to fill the disciples. Here's what it says. It says, when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, this, verse nine, this chapter 9 verse 1 that we just read that seems so confusing. I think this could very easily be pointing to this day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the disciples that they could live and be his representatives in the world. That the Holy Spirit, just as we have, this is what 9 chapter 1 was talking about. That verse 9 chapter 1 was a, was a verse of comfort to them. Saying, guys, guys, don't worry. Don't worry. Whatever you will lose will be made up for more than, than, than you've lost. You will see greater things. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So even though we can't be absolutely certain about what that verse means, verse 1, I think the general meaning is clear, and it's wonderful. So then I begin to think, well, what does this mean for you and I? What does this mean for Restoration Church? See, the thing that Jesus says here, that we are to deny ourselves, that we are to take up our cross, don't be ashamed of him, or I will be ashamed of you. It seems that Jesus is stating that following him, that becoming a disciple, becoming a Christian, being a follower of Jesus is much more 
demanding than just praying a prayer. I know many of us began our faith because we prayed a prayer because the pastor said, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And oftentimes that is the starting point of our faith. But I want us to see that the distinguishing characteristic of those who follow Jesus is that they have a life that is marked by continually laying down their lives. Continually laying down their lives, taking up their cross, and following after Jesus. This is what we should be assessing our life after. We should be looking at our lives and say, does this represent me? Do I see myself in that kind of life? You shouldn't just hear this and think I'm good. I'm good. We have to look at our lives and ask ourselves, are we taking up our crosses? We need to ask ourselves, have I actually lost anything for following Jesus? Have I denied myself anything because I want a relationship with God? See, most of us, most of the time, we don't see much suffering for Jesus. I mean, we see suffering in general. We see people going through illness. We see death. Believers and non-believers go through those things. But the question is, have you actually suffered for following Jesus? Have you denied yourself anything for being a believer? See, one of the big things, I think, as to why sometimes you don't experience those types of difficulties. Because I think it's hard for us to live on mission. I think this is where the second part of our mission statement, to know Christ and to make Christ known, comes in. You see, the truth is, and when we are attempting to make Christ known, when we are attempting to reach people who are far from God with the gospel, that when we are on mission, when we are proclaiming who Jesus is, we will suffer. We will be rejected. We will suffer. It will cost us. Being on mission, making Christ known, will cost something of us. Being on mission like nothing else demands that you change your life and you give up things that you wouldn't otherwise have to. Being on mission means that we are going to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, I have to admit that, that this is one of the things that I've had to struggle through in my Christian faith. I mean, yeah, I want to I proclaim who Jesus is, but I don't want to suffer for it. And so what that does is that causes me to be timid. That causes me to be hesitant to share my faith because I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to be told no. I don't want to be told you're an idiot for believing those things. I don't want to be told you're weak because you're clinging to religion. And these are the things, if we're proclaiming our faith, these are the things that we will hear. These are the things that we will hear. But let me tell you what, when we get past that, when we're really willing to to make Christ known, I mean, we talk about this each one reach one campaign. I'll just be honest, there was some anxiety inside of me. Because I think it's easier for me to say as a pastor, you guys go do this. Each one of you go reach somebody for Jesus. It's easier for me to say, you guys go do that. But then I started thinking, man, what about me? Who am I actually going to go and share the gospel with? Not standing behind the comfort of the pulpit, but actually in real life. It means I had to walk into my son's class. And I couldn't just volunteer. I had to have a spiritual conversation and say, hey, can I tell you who Jesus is? It means I had to walk down to my neighbor's house, who I hardly know. And I had to be willing to say, hey, let me tell you who Jesus is. And I had to face rejection. I had to sacrifice myself. And I tell you what, it was so worth it. 
It was so worth it. Think about Jesus and Paul. Most of their suffering that they experienced came because of the gospel, because of being on mission. Jesus came seeking to save that which is lost, and he died. Paul had an ambition to preach the gospel in places where Jesus' name had not been known, and he died. The suffering that came to them was because of their commitment to proclaiming the gospel, to making Christ known. See, we are not going to suffer for the sake of Christ. Excuse me, we are going to suffer for the sake of Christ. And when we love people who don't love us back, we suffer for the sake of Christ when we share the, people, share the gospel with people who think we're idiots and think we're weak for believing in religion. We will endure just a little bit of the suffering that Jesus had to endure. But let me tell you what, it is so worth it. Lean in because it is so worth it. In fact, look at the words of the apostle Peter. Peter wrote a letter to a displaced, a scattered church. And he says in verse 5 of, his, of his, the first book of Peter, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will restore, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's writing this to a group of people who are losing everything for, for God, for Jesus. And Peter tells him to hold on because it's only going to be a little while. Because it's only a matter of time before Jesus will come and strengthen and confirm and establish you. And he's telling us it is all worth it. It is all worth it. So the question we're left with is, are you following Jesus? Are you willing to take up your cross and to follow him. Would you pray with me? God, this, this is one of those harder messages. One of these hard passages. Because God, you, you, you put expectation on us. You say, if you're going to be my child, this is what it's going to look like. It's so much easier for us to think I can just pray a prayer and that's it. But God, you ask for so much more. That we deny ourselves. That we take up our cross and we follow you. God, I pray for myself. God, I pray that I would have that faith. That I would deny myself. That I would deny the dreams I have for my life. And I'll lay them at your feet and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, I want to go where you go. I want to do what you want me to do. This means I take up my cross and I'm willing to suffer for your name's sake. God, I pray that you give me the kind of faith that I would be willing to suffer and endure because you are totally worth it. Worth it. God, I pray for every one of us in here today, that God, we would have that kind of faith. That we would hold on to you with every fiber of our being. That we would say, you are worthy. You are better than anything that this world has to offer. Because even if I were to gain the entire world and I lost my soul, it would be disastrous. 
God, I pray that we would be marked, Restoration Church would be marked by a group of people who are willing to surrender ourselves, to surrender all, to take up our cross and to follow you. That, God, we would be willing to take this Each One Reach One campaign and that we would actually be willing to do something with that. The whole idea is every one of us in here that we would be willing to take the gospel message to somebody around us who doesn't know Jesus and say, can I tell you how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because that's not just something that the pastor does on the pulpit on Sunday. This is something that we are to do every day in our lives. God, I pray that you would give us that that faith, that boldness, that we can trust you, that when we proclaim your message, that you will be the one that vindicates us. That even though we suffer, even though we may have to uh, endure rejection, that God, you won't reject us at that day. God, I pray that you would help us to understand what it means for us to really follow you. God, I pray that you would meet us here today. God, I pray for those who have been going through the motions of following you. Been saying, yeah, yeah, verbally I like Jesus. Verbally I, I follow Jesus. God, I pray that you would help those people today to live that out, to make that a part of their life, to take up their cross and to follow you no matter what happens. God, I pray for those in here today who are feeling the weight of that cross, who are feeling the difficulty. God, I pray that today you would comfort them, that you would wrap your arms around them just as you've done to so many of us that you would pour out your love on us, that we would feel your presence and that we would be brought into restoration, that we'd be re-energized, that we would be reinvigorated, that we would have the strength to go forward one more day and one more day and one more day. God, I pray as we have this opportunity now to respond to you through worship, God, I pray that you would meet us here I pray, God, that you would allow us just to cry out to you. For those that you need to take some time right now to pray, God, I pray that you would give us that ability just to sit in our seat and just cry out to you saying, God, I need you. God, I need you right here, right now. God, I pray for those in here today that they would just stand and be able to get lost in these words. That these words we're about to sing won't just be words that we sing as we go on through the motions, but God, they'd be the cry of our hearts. God, thank you for meeting us here today. We ask this in your name. Amen.